2 Corinthians 12 is where we will be today. Many people are out today traveling various places, doing various things. The Carpenters are in Colorado, and the uh, Lewises are in Kansas, the Wadlingtons are in California. But life's good because Joe's back. (laughs) Glad you're here. So good to see you. Didn't know if you'd come back after being pampered where you were there. You were treated like a queen. But you've come back here to join us, so appreciate that. Glad you're well. Well, we start today the penultimate chapter of 2 Corinthians, the second to last chapter of the book. I can now see the end of 2 Corinthians when my Bible's open and I'm preaching. That's sad to me. I'll just drag it out. (laughs) I love this book. I I love going through this and all these things we've been able to discuss. But uh, there's still more. There's so much more. And we start chapter 12 today. So I will read uh, verses 1 through 6 and then open with a prayer. Paul here is going to speak of uh, an amazing vision he had, but it's laced with hesitancy. It's laced with warning. And that's really going to be the thrust of the message today. But let's look together, starting at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do wish to boast, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Father, we thank you for this passage that you've given us, the truths that are found here. We ask that you would help us to understand this amazing account that Paul writes down for us under inspiration of your Spirit. And we ask, too, that you would help me today to teach and preach well, that I would not get in the way of your word but that your word would be clear to your people. Help us all to grow in Christ today. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, the Corinthians were seemingly obsessed with ecstatic experiences, charismatic or supernatural, you could say, expressions and experiences of the Christian faith. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through 14, Paul takes up significant real estate in that letter, talking about prophecy, talking about tongues, different revelations, miracle working that was going on in the church, Uh, many different expressions, supernatural expressions of the faith that were taking place in Corinth. And it seems as though that particular church was obsessed with those kinds of expressions of the faith. It seems that way because Paul, in that last letter, wrote to them saying, Okay, when you all come together and you have these revelations from the Lord, let's do this in order. 
No more than two or three are to speak at a time. Everybody in turn. And if anyone's going to speak in any kind of language that that person didn't know beforehand, just miraculously speaking in a new language, there needs to be someone interpreting that tongue. He gave them these instructions because apparently they weren't doing these things. And you can just imagine how chaotic it must have been in those church services. Everyone coming with these miraculous gifts that God was giving, with revelations, with tongues, with miracles, and no order whatsoever. So Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, God is a God of order. He's a God of peace. He's not a God of confusion. Well, these Corinthians were living in a culture that pursued mystical experiences. And so, in that early church, when God was giving them some supernatural experiences, they were taking that ball and perhaps running too far with it. But to give you an idea of that culture that they were in and the the mystical elements of that ancient Greek culture, I want to read to you from a document back in that first century there in Greece. Uh, One commentator gives a preface to this uh, transcription saying, "'Visions were also a part of the religious landscape of the Gentile world,' as an important element of in magical rites and as a part of initiations into mystery cults. And so here he quotes a fragment from the Mithras liturgy depicting a visionary ascent into heaven. This is what the Corinthian culture was hearing from their community. This document says, "'You will see yourself being lifted up and ascending to the height so that you seem to be in midair.'" You will see all immortal things, for in that day and hour you will see the divine order of the skies. The presiding gods, plural, will appear through the disk of God, and you will see the gods staring intently at you and rushing at you. Then you will see the gods looking graciously upon you and no longer rushing at you, but rather going about in their own order of affairs." So when you see that the world above is clear and circling and that none of the gods or angels is threatening you, expect to hear a great crash of thunder so as to shock you. And after you have said the second prayer, you will see many five-pronged stars coming forth from the disk and filling all the air. Then say again, silence, silence. And when the disk is open, you will see the fireless circle and the fiery doors shut tight. That happened to you this week? If it did, I'd ask what you were on, uh, because that is not normal. But this is the Corinthian culture. That was what they were experiencing in the religious landscape outside of Christianity at that time. A lot of emphasis on visions. And you can just imagine that there were many Corinthians in this church who were believers in Jesus now, who were still excited by such visions. They still got fired up about hearing of these things. And it's likely that the false apostles in Corinth told many similar stories as proof of their status. Perhaps they were issuing to the church as credibility where they went and what they did and all of their supernatural adventures and all the visions they experienced. Now, this, of course, proves nothing. If someone comes to you and wants to relate a supernatural experience, that proves nothing. Okay? I want you to... Get that. I want you to hear that first this morning. It proves nothing. As John MacArthur has said in his commentary on this passage, true spiritual power, authority, and integrity do not come from visions and revelations, but from godly humility. 
Because what's going on most of the time when someone wants to tell you about this supernatural experience? That person wants you to be enamored. That person wants you to be slack-jawed, just in awe of what's going on. But it proves nothing. There are many people out there, just like that first century culture in Greece, many people out there who will tell you about ecstatic experiences. It proves nothing. What proves something is what somebody does with the Word of God. What proves something is a life lived for God in humble, sacrificial service. That's true proof of God's blessing. Yet, with all that in mind, Paul had to refer to his own experiences here. In verses 2 through 4, here of chapter 12, Paul shares his own experience, and he's reluctantly speaking of himself again. If you look again at verse 1 with me, Paul says, it's necessary, this isn't profitable, but this is necessary, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And if you drop down to verse 7, after he speaks of this vision, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. And we'll talk about that thorn next week. But Paul is clearly here talking about the visions he has experienced. Paul is talking about the revelations that he has experienced in his life, and he's doing so reluctantly. I wanted to make this point that Paul is talking about himself because you'll notice, and maybe you've already caught it as as I was reading through the passage, that Paul refers to himself in the third person. Look at verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ. Well, he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of the visions, the revelations that were given to him, the same ones that were given to him, so he would need a thorn in the flesh to keep him from exalting himself. He's humbly referring to himself as an anonymous third party. By phrasing it this way, Paul's essentially saying, don't exalt me. When you think of me, think of my weaknesses. I know, I know a man 14 years ago, this happened to him, but me, I'm weak. Think of my weaknesses. That's the way Paul is approaching this. He doesn't want to boast, but he has to boast. And so speaking in the third person is kind of like a way of taking the edge off of the boasting here. That's what Paul is doing. And he's teaching us here from this opening verse that necessity does not always indicate profitability. Because it's necessary that he does this, it doesn't mean that it's profitable. And he is speaking of boasting. Again, look at verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it, boasting, is not profitable. What it means to boast is to glory in yourself. It means to focus on yourself and relate your own experiences as excellent. And Paul says, look, this isn't going to help anybody, but I have to do this. This boasting was not profitable, but it was necessary. Now, of course, Boasting is popular and exciting, isn't it? We see this all the time. We experience this all the time. If you're in relationships with fellow human beings, you know people who brag. You know people who glory in self, people who boast, perhaps even in their own experiences with God, people who like to boast about such things. But is, is it edifying? It's popular. It's exciting. It draws us in. Someone's telling a story and you're picturing it in your mind and whoa, wow. But is it edifying? Well, Paul answers here with a resounding, no, it is not. And he doesn't just say that here, which, I mean, he does, but he also says that in the way that he lives his life. The letters that he wrote to these churches, Paul wrote 13 letters. 
How many times does he talk about this amazing vision? One time, reluctantly. How easy would it have been for Paul to start each letter? I, Paul, the one who has been to the third heaven, says to you, yada, yada, yada. But he doesn't. He speaks of it reluctantly. He talks about this vision essentially against his own will. David Garland in his commentary says, Private mystical experiences have no value for the church because they cannot be adequately communicated to others. The danger of basing teaching on private heavenly revelations is that it will create a division between those blessed with such visions and the rank and file who are not. And I think that's exactly what Paul had in view. I think that was exactly Paul's handling of his own vision. It's not edifying for others. It cannot be adequately communicated to others. And we even see that here in this passage, and we'll examine it in more detail here in a moment. But notice how in verse 2 and in verse 3, he says two different times, repeats it one after the other, that he doesn't even know if this was in the body or out of the body. He doesn't know all the details. He's ignorant of all the details. Something as important as, were you out of your body or did you have this body with you? He doesn't even know. We cannot adequately express such things. These things cannot be the basis of our beliefs because they are not certain. And Paul, even an apostle, was not certain about some of the most important details of this vision. Yet, with that said, Paul recognized there were times when we must do that which will ultimately benefit no one. And you know this, don't you? There are times when you have to do things that will ultimately benefit nobody. You interacted with the government lately? <laughs> just, I mean, just recently, within uh, the last month or so, I received a notification at my home address that one of the things that I do on behalf of the church in our relationship with the state, uh, we, had, we had missed the window to renew one of our things. There are like a million things we got to keep track of, and we missed the window. And so I called up the people and saying, okay, uh, what do we do now? And as I'm talking to her, I said, did you send me any notices of renewal? I didn't see anything. Punches it in the computer. Oh, yeah, we sent you two. Looks like they were both returned to us. Oh, okay. Why were they returned? Oh, you, you guys have a P.O. box, and we don't mail to P.O. boxes. Okay. Uh, did you have my phone number? Yes. Did you have my email? Yes. Why didn't you, why didn't you reach out? You know? Oh, I don't know. And I didn't want to be mean to her. It wasn't her fault, you know. But that's the problem with dealing with the government. It's never anybody's fault, right? So it's like, okay. And uh, you mailed the, the final warning to my home. Why didn't you mail one of, the, one of the other warnings to my home? I don't know. So now, every time I fill out a government form, I'm thinking, necessary but not profitable. Necessary but not profitable. This helps nobody. And that's essentially the view that Paul had here when he's talking about his vision, saying, this isn't going to profit anybody, but I have to say this. I have to communicate what the Lord did in my life. It was not an option for Paul to refrain. He had to provide a contrast with the false apostles. And perhaps you're thinking of another little saying that Paul had that came up in his first letter to the Corinthians. When he says in verse 1, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, it sounds a lot like that phrase, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. You remember that one? And with that phrase, when Paul says all things are lawful, but not all is profitable, the point is there are lots of things you can do, but refrain from some of those because not all of them will benefit you. When it comes to this phrase, you still have to do it because it's necessary. And that's how Paul felt about relating this vision that he had. 
You know that many would jump to brag at the, oppor- or at the opportunity to brag of such a vision, but Paul did this reluctantly. He preferred not to focus on himself. He preferred not to focus on personal edification, those things that God had given him as private experiences for his own personal edification. Paul didn't want to focus on those things. He wanted to focus on building up the whole body of Christ. He wanted to focus on serving others. He wanted to focus on his weaknesses that God's glorious strength would be seen in his life, not these amazing visions of grandeur, or as the hymn says, visions of rapture bursting on his sight. He did not want to focus on that which personally edified. He wanted to focus on that which edified the whole church. And in verse 5, you see this again when he's using the anonymous third person. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. When Paul was using personal pronouns, the I, me, and my, it was in relation to his weaknesses. When he was going to talk about an exaltation, when he was going to talk about an experience of going to heaven, it was going to be that anonymous third person. He wanted them to think of his weaknesses when they thought of him. What a contrast to false teachers. He wanted that church to think of his weaknesses and the Lord's strength through his weaknesses. He did not want that church to think, what an amazing fellow Paul is. This is the contrast he's providing with the false apostles, the false apostles who are all about themselves. And that's one of the marks of a false teacher. As you think about those out there trying to woo your mind over to their side, who twist what the Bible has to say, one of the marks is that it's going to be about themselves. They're going to show off their greatness. And maybe they won't say it, but maybe they'll express it by the way they live. Maybe they'll express it by how much it's actually all about themselves outside of Sunday morning in a certain window. False teachers care about themselves more than they care about you. They love themselves more than they love you. And Paul says, I really don't want to play that game. I want you to think about how weak I am, but how good God is. That was the way he was approaching this. So we must be slow to relate our experiences to others. If we're going to take Paul's lead here, we must be slow when we start sharing our personal experiences with others. Now, I doubt any of you would say you had the same experience as Paul, as it's described here. But we've all had, we all have stories, don't we? All of us have stories. We need to be very slow about focusing on our stories when we are sharing with other people. We want people to see God not us. We want people to be edified, not enamored with us. And those are really two principles that you can take with you. And and this is the heart of the sermon today, by the way. This isn't a side point. This This is the core of what I'm saying today. We want other people to see God in us. We don't want them to see us. We want people to glory in God's goodness, not our own excellencies. We want people to be edified in the Lord, not enamored with our stories. Paul says in verse 6 that if he wished to boast, he would not be foolish, meaning he would tell the truth. He would be speaking the truth if he wanted to go on with this foolishness of talking about all of his experiences. But instead, he says, I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. 
He did not want people exalting him. He did not want people thinking too highly of him. He wanted people to see God in him, and that's why he preferred to focus on his weakness. If you make a big deal out of your weaknesses and people are blessed by you, where does all the credit go? To God. But if you're all about yourself and you're you're all about building yourself up, you're wanting people to be amazed by you, and that is not a Christian desire. Again, David Garland in his commentary, he says, to dwell on our own excellence is dangerous because it causes us to turn our attention from God's glory to our own and stokes the sinful desire to create a circle of admirers for ourselves rather than disciples of Christ. So true. We want people to see God, not us, and we want people to be edified. Did you know that your stories are not nearly as profitable as you think they are? They're just not. That all of us, our stories are not nearly as profitable as we think they are. But we have a guarantee that the Word of God is profitable, don't we? We have an absolute guarantee every single time you bring the Word of God to bear on your situation, you bring the Word of God to bear on whatever conversation it is, there will be profit. Because as God rains down water, He rains down snow, and it does not return to him empty, it's the same with his word. His word is certain. His word is sure. And we have a guarantee to edify someone else when we are focusing on the word of God. Paul says here that it's not profitable that he focus on himself. Yet there are many out there who have found literal prophets in writing about their own visions of heaven. Have you seen these in the stores? There are lots of books out there. You can call them celestial tourism books, where people make literal profits on going to heaven. And some of them have been redacted because they were lies. You have to be so discerning. You have to be so careful. Focus on the Word of God. Focus on what God has said, not someone else's visions that may or may not be true. What's the result of focusing on these supernatural experiences anyway. I think it's entertainment at best, and I think it's deception at worst. I, I know of a, an otherwise solid teacher of the Bible, a guy who's been preaching for a long time and has amassed a, a decent following as just being a good Bible teacher. And then a few years ago, he, wanted, he decided to start relaying visions he thought he was having from God from the pulpit. And he was saying that he didn't know what these visions were all about. Next thing you know, he's talking about pirate ships and sharks and all kinds of stuff, and he's saying all these things, and no one knows. And he even says, I don't know, maybe that was for someone out there, and then he you know, moves on to the next thing. And it's entertaining, but it doesn't build anybody up. It's, it's interesting, but it doesn't help you grow closer to God. It doesn't teach you anything from the Word of God. There's no profit in it. And really, it's folly. If I, I, I couldn't live with myself if I stood up here and started talking to you about stuff like that. I couldn't do it. I would hope you would correct me immediately. Don't wait for me to say amen. Just stand up and start talking to me about it. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's foolish. But we also know there's, there can be deception in this too. How many false religions have been started by someone saying, I got these visions from God? Many. Not just a handful, but Many. 
We always go back to what has God said. Let's look at the Word of God. Let's look at what is certain. Let's examine our foundation. My encouragement to you is that we are to rely on what we have been given, which is the Word of God. Consider how Paul opened his last letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 4. Just consider how, what Paul says here. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He told them they were not lacking in anything. They were not lacking in any gift. They were not lacking. They had all that they needed to serve God, to await the revelation of Jesus Christ at His second coming. Consider also Ephesians chapter 2. You can even turn there if you'd like. It's just a couple of books over. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. Listen to what Paul says to this church. Ephesians 2, verse 19, it says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church's foundation, according to verse 20, if you're there, look at verse 20. The church's foundation is the apostles and prophets. The revelation that was given to them, the Word of God that's preserved for us today, is the foundation for the church. And so now we, we grow from there. We are built upon their foundation. We are built on the Word of God, and that should be what we rely on. We shouldn't seek something new to replace what we've been given, to add to what we've been given. We cannot improve on this foundation. We have this foundation from God that we rest upon. And Paul didn't market his experiences. He didn't write a long book about his experiences. He didn't charge people to come into the arena and hear about all of his experiences because he wanted the focus to be on Jesus Christ. Again, MacArthur in his commentary said, Paul's visions did not benefit the church because they were not verifiable, nor could they be repeated, and they could lead to pride. What is profitable is Scripture, which is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. So explicitly in Paul's writings, he says, my vision of the third heaven, not profitable. Word of God, profitable. You have to have this understanding when you encounter a text like this or when you encounter a person who wants to make a big deal out of his visions. The Word of God is profitable. So Paul was setting himself apart from the false apostles by embracing his suffering as his distinguishing mark. His visions were not his distinguishing mark. His suffering was his distinguishing mark. Nevertheless, Paul does give us a bit of insight into one of his visions, This is necessary but not profitable, yet we still do well to examine it. And so let's look at it again, starting in verse 2, and we'll, we'll break it down. It says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, 
whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Well, the first thing he says in verse 2 was that this was 14 years ago. So in Paul's life, 14 years before this moment would have been about 41 or 42 AD. He had been a Christian for about seven years at this point. He was back in his hometown of Tarsus. He was there for a long time before he was called into missions. And so he was back in his hometown before he ever took a missionary journey. And that's when this vision took place. And it's very significant that he gives us the timetable saying 14 years ago, because this was before he ever had a relationship with this church. This was before he ever visited Corinth. It's before he was ever sent out to go plant churches in Corinth and the surrounding area. And he never told them of this experience. This is the first time he's sharing this experience with them. Well, that tells us that such visions were not a prerequisite for being an apostle. Because he went to the Corinthians as an apostle of Jesus. They received him as an apostle of Jesus. And that was that. Yet these false apostles come in after him and say that you must have these Trans, transportation, <laughs> not the way we typically use that word, transportation visions in order to be qualified to lead God's church, in order to be an apostle. And Paul says, no, this vision was not a qualifier. It was obviously a unique vision. It was obviously a, a rare experience for Paul. And I would go as far to say that this was likely an experience that no other apostle had. I think this was unique to Paul. The transfiguration was unique to Peter, James, and John, for them to behold that. And I think this was unique to Paul. And I think that God gave him this vision at this time as a motivator for what he was about to suffer. Jesus, when he called Paul, Jesus said, I'm going to show you these things that you have to suffer for my namesake. And he showed him the third heaven. He showed him the paradise of God. And Paul obviously never forgot it. You would never forget it. And that was constantly a motivator for him in his missionary journeys as he continually suffered for Christ. Verses 2 and 3 explain that this was a potential out-of-body experience. He says repeatedly he's ignorant of this reality. If it was out-of-body or not, he doesn't know. Of course, the uh, Greeks of that day, those in the Corinthian community, would likely say they would have to be out-of-body because they put so much focus on the spirit. They put so much focus on the immaterial but Paul had a holistic view of man. So he said, eh, it, could, it could have been my body there in heaven. I don't know. Because God is able to take my body and do with it what he, what he wills. You'll, of course, remember Enoch and Elijah. They were taken whole, just body and spirit. They were taken. Though, they weren't, uh, though he wasn't taken to heaven, you can think of Philip in the book of Acts. Philip was transported. He was walking around in one place, and next thing he knew, he was in another place, and he was talking with an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. That was both his spirit and his body, where he was transported that way. But then you also think of the thief on the cross, who was promised that that very day he would be in paradise, and he went there without his body, didn't he? They had to take his body down from the cross and do with his body what they did. Well, the fact that Paul had ignorance about this and that he repeated it means it's unimportant. That's what this means at the end of the day. Was it in the body or was it out of the body? It actually doesn't matter. 
God knows, and that's enough. And we know that upon death, believers today go to God apart from the body. Paul explained this earlier in the letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 6, Paul explains this by saying, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So when you die, to be absent from the body, Christian, is to be home with the Lord. At that time, your body and your soul are separated, but they will be reunited again at the resurrection. Perhaps Paul was just getting a preview of that future glorification. Well, whether this was material in the body or not, he still referred to it as a rapture experience. Notice that he says there in verse 3, or verse 4 rather, he was caught up. It's the same word that we get in 1 Thessalonians 4, to be caught up together with Jesus in the clouds. He's to be, he was raptured. He was, he was passive in this scenario. God was the one who took him and brought him there. It wasn't something that Paul earned. It wasn't something that Paul was working his way toward. It was something that God just did in his timing and in his way. And he tells us there in verse 4 also the location of where this was. It was the third heaven. He also says paradise. Uh, paradise in uh, verse 4. It was actually verse 2, rather, that says the third heaven. He doesn't say the third level of heaven. He says the third heaven. And if you were in my Sunday school class today, then you could pop up here and teach this because this is a bit of review for you. We just talked about this today. In the Bible, we hear heaven used or we see heaven used, that word, in three different ways. It's used as the atmosphere, the environment, the place where there are clouds and rain. Like in Isaiah 55, verse 10, it talks about heaven. It says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven. There, it's clearly not talking about the throne room of God. It's talking about the clouds above us. And that, in one sense, is heaven. The Bible talks about heaven also as outer space. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 13, verse 10, it says, "...the stars of heaven and their constellations will flash forth their light." So beyond the clouds, in the, atm- or in the outer space, that's also heaven. You see that in Psalm 8.3 also. In Psalm 8.3, it says, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Moon and stars are also spoken of as heaven. But then, of course, heaven as we most often use it, heaven as we think of it when we use the word, is God's presence also. And I think that's what Paul meant when he said the third heaven. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30, we see heaven used this way as we do in many places in the Bible. When it says, listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, hear in heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. So heaven is the dwelling place of God. And of course, perhaps most famously, Matthew 6, 9, Jesus taught us the model prayer, our Father in heaven. It's the presence of God, the dwelling place of God. And the third heaven is also called paradise. Again, we see that in verse 4 of our passage. That's where, as I mentioned, the thief on the cross went after he breathed his last. He went to paradise with Jesus. It's not the only place in the New Testament we hear about paradise. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus gives us this promise. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amazing. God's presence, even in the new earth, is also called paradise. So wherever God is, the the presence of God, the fullness of the presence of God without sin getting in the way, that's true heaven, isn't it? Whether it's the place you go today if you were to pass away or all the way forward to the new earth, it's paradise. There's no place that's more paradise than the presence of God. That is, if you've been known by God, if you've been forgiven by God. Because if you haven't, then there's nothing more terrifying than the presence of God. Well, Paul also says, the last part of this vision that I want to seek to explain, in verse 4, he says that when he was caught up into paradise, when he was in the third heaven, he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. He heard communication that could not be replicated when he was there. Now, this could mean a couple of things, all right? But I'll start here um, with the obvious. Earthy creatures like us, we have a hard time understanding the heavenly stuff, don't we? I was just thinking about this this week and how the books of Daniel and Revelation kind of go together when you read through your Bible. They both have a lot of angels in them and visions from angels and prophecies about the end times, Daniel and Revelation do. And those are like maybe the two most debated books among Christians because we just have a hard time with this heavenly stuff. Messages that are delivered through angels, yeah, they're delivered in such a way that we can understand, but boy, is it difficult. It's more difficult than some other things. Earthly creatures have a hard time understanding heavenly stuff. But we can also consider how Paul talked about the communication in heaven once before. Perhaps this was a hypothetical Paul was throwing out there. Perhaps he meant it literally. But in 1 Corinthians 13.1, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, the question is, Do angels have their own angelic language? He says, if I speak with their language, but I don't have love, I become just a a clanging, crashing symbol. Was that just hypothetical or is that real? Perhaps he heard the tongues of angels, and that's why the language was inexpressible. Well, what I think was most likely, what I think is uh, most accurate to what could be uh, spoken of here is when he says inexpressible, I think Paul is referring to the sacredness of the moment. I think Paul is referring to just how sacred that that time was in the third heaven where he was seeing, hearing, beholding the glory of God and witnessing the realm of angels. Basically saying, what happened there is too special to be spread around here. When he says that these things men are not permitted to speak, I think he's saying, I'm legally bound by God to not repeat what I saw. It's not for now. It's for later. And Paul was given this unique experience by God's gracious choice. He's saying this is too precious to be brought low, to be brought down into this fallen world. And we can only imagine what Paul saw. But I don't know if Paul would want us to spend much time imagining what he saw. I think he wants us to focus on his weaknesses, to focus on the strength of God through him. 
Yet after seeing such an amazing vision, he goes on to say again, verse 7, that because of the greatness of this, to keep me from exalting myself, I was given a thorn in the flesh. And so that's what we'll talk about next week is just how God kept Paul humble through such amazing experiences. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you gave Paul this vision and that you showed us how he handled it. Lord, you've done amazing things in our lives. You've shown us so many marvelous things. You've worked wonders before us. And Lord, we can be so quick to to focus on the external. We can be so quick to use things for our own gain. Help us to keep our experiences in their place. Help us to focus on you. Help us to focus on your word. Help us to edify others by your word that we wouldn't be caught up in anything that is uncertain, that we wouldn't be caught up in anything that is doubtful, but that we would focus on the certain word you've given us, the surety of our salvation, the message of hope, the gospel that goes forth to the nations that they may be saved. Help us to keep these things in order that you would be evident through us, that people would see you and not us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.